Hey, everybody. It is good to be back with you here on the last Sunday of 2020, the last Sunday of what has been a wonderful year, right? No problems, no hips, you know, no hicks. Um, anyway, um, as we as we close the year um, and we start thinking about next year, I know one thing that happens a lot with church folks is uh, they start a reading plan as they go through the Bible. And um, I'm really excited that I think a lot of you are probably going to do that. If you haven't, maybe today I can convince you to do that. The problem is, though, that a lot of the, the church folks who start reading plans, um, those reading plans end up the same way that our gym memberships from January end up. You know, we go once or twice, and then we realize going to the gym sucks, which is why I don't go to the gym. And um, we quit by February. By the way, my wife has signed me up at least two or three times for gym memberships. I've never been to the gym. Um, I go play basketball sometimes, but I've never been and worked out and lifted weights or whatever. Like I know a lot of you are about to do for one month in January. Well, what happens with the reading plans is kind of the same thing. We start in Genesis and we read some stuff. Ooh, this is interesting. And then we get to Leviticus and uh, everybody quits in February. So today what I wanna do is try to help encourage you in those reading plans and just in reading the whole Bible as um, the story of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do today is we're going to actually just tell the entire story of the Bible, the whole flow of how the Bible is about Jesus. And so the, the text for today's sermon is actually the table of contents. So if you have a Bible, open it up, flip it, or if you're using your app, flip to the part where you choose which book to go to. I want you to just somehow see the list of books in order. And we're going to go through just the whole story in hopefully about a half an hour here um, and talk about how this whole thing is about Jesus. Now, as we read the Bible, the whole scripture, there are um, really two main ideas. There's a lot of things I could, you know, the last time I did this sermon, it was about an hour long. Um, but uh, there are two big ideas I think you need to know as you're reading the scriptures. The first one is that God... Um, orchestrates this story of scripture and he uses patterns to do it. So there's patterns that we see, especially in the Old Testament, that teach us something about the New Testament. In, you know, hermeneutics, we call this typology, right? In studying the Bible, we call this typology. Um, it's like when um, you give a kid one of those, uh, you know, those, I don't know who makes them, the, the red cars with the yellow top and the kid sits in it and he drives around. Or if you give a kid a video game that's a car, it's not a real car. You can't drive to Safeway and pick up groceries in that. But when the kid turns 16, he's going to know what a steering wheel is. Um, he's going to know the basics of a car. That's basically what God does. In the Old Testament, he gives these smaller pictures that later on are developed and show up more fully. And so as you're reading the Old Testament, look for some of these patterns, right? You have like the idea of tabernacle where God's and temple where God's presence resides. And then that's fleshed out more fully. Or the idea of sacrifice is fleshed out more fully um, when we read about Jesus and the cross. And so um, <clears throat> that's the first idea. Here's the second idea you really need to understand, and this is very important as you read the Bible. Uh, you're not the main character of the Bible. So as you read the scriptures, everybody watches, let's say everybody watches like James Bond. And when we're watching James Bond, we, we imagine ourselves as James Bond. Nobody watches James Bond and 
you know, where he he does something at the top of the mountain, right? It's always at the top of the mountain or, you know, in the island in the middle of the ocean or whatever. And he dismantles the atomic bomb and saves the entire world. And everybody kind of imagines themselves as James Bond. But you're not James Bond, right? You're the guy back in London working a regular job who is saved by the work of James Bond, right? You're not the hero. Jesus is. I actually have a mug a friend just got me for Christmas because the big story where we all do this is the David and Goliath story, right? Well, I'm David and God will help me, um, you know, defeat my Goliaths, defeat my giants. But the point of that story is that Jesus is the true and greater David who defeated the ultimate giant, right? In sin and death. And so I have this mug here. It says Goliath and not you is what it says here. Everyone, my friend Gabby just got this for me. My buds, Gabby and Joel. Anyway, so those are the two things I really want you as you're reading the Bible this year to remember, right? Look for those patterns and remember that Jesus is the main character of the story. You're not. Okay, so let's do the entire story of the Bible in about 25 minutes here. Um, I, I'm obviously going to skip huge portions and we're not going to cover everything, but let's get to it. So the Bible opens up so simply, right? There's no apologetic for the um the philosophical arguments for the existence of God. There's none of that stuff. The Bible just opens up very simply. In the beginning, I don't know why I'm reading this like I don't know this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when I was a kid, I remember asking somebody in my church, you know, well, why did God create everything? And they said, well, because he's lonely. And that's such a lame answer, like something's wrong with God and we fulfill God. The reason God created was um, within the Trinity, there's this perfect love, and creation is an overflow of that love. And mankind, human beings, we're the pinnacle of uh, that creative, um, you know, of the creation, right? Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, obviously, that's a whole couple of sermons, but the basic idea is we're uh, meant to be in relationship with God. We're, we're meant, we're built for relationships. And the only thing that can truly satisfy us is that connection to our creator. And so as the story goes, right, Adam and Eve are created. They live in the garden happily ever after, right? No. Um, the next, the in chapter three, so Genesis one and two is the creation story. Uh, chapter three, everything uh, is falls apart, right? The wheels come off the bus. Um, in Genesis 3, we're introduced to the bad guy in the story, uh, the enemy of God. And he tempts uh, Adam and Eve. And what he says to them basically is, you should be the lords of your own life. You don't need him to be the Lord. You be the center. And they choose to do that. And sin appears. And when it does, the whole world is broken. The whole universe, all of this creation falls. So their relationship with God is broken and they start lying to God. And then the relationship with each other is broken. One of the, the worst sentences in the entire Bible, although it is kind of funny, is um, God says to Adam, you know, hey, did you eat this fruit? He was like, well, yeah, but the woman that you gave me, by the way, she made me do it, right? Immediately, he throws blame on somebody else. And the relationship with the world is broken, right? Broken too. Farming is going to suck. That's part of the, the curse that God dishes out. But in the middle of this whole section where God is saying, uh, curses the woman, having kids is going to suck, to the man, farming is going to suck. Uh, he curses the, the enemy too. And in the middle of there, there's this verse that we call the first gospel, the Proto-Euangelion. Um, there's this little bit of hope in the midst of everything. And I think maybe if you really press me, I'd probably say this is the most important verse in the entire Bible. It's Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman uh, and between your offspring 
and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what God says is, okay, I'm going to fix this whole sin problem and I'm going to do it by sending somebody who's going to show up and is going to crush the enemy and uh, is going to defeat the enemy. And so the next, the, as the story is flushed out, uh, we see the effects of sin. Um, Eve has a son named Cain, has another son named Abel. And I bet she was wondering, I wonder if one of these dudes is going to be that promised king, the promised, uh, you know, snake crusher. And obviously, neither of those guys are. Um, we see the, the the broken relationships continue in the way that Cain kills Abel. And then eventually the world gets so bad um, that God, you know, he does a, a he backs up the hard drive and then he resets the operating system. Right. He, he sends uh, he sends this flood and he saves Noah and his family. But here's the thing. We, we think of Noah as this great hero. But at the very end of the Noah story, the, he's sort of the new Adam. Right. At the end of the this Noah story, this new guy who's going to, um, you know, be the father of all of mankind. What does he do? He sins with the vineyard and that whole story. Um, if you don't know that, go look that up. But he's a fallen sinner. Um, so he's not the guy either. Then the stories we have after that are like the Tower of Babel, where humanity is um, just fallen into idolatry and pride. But then the story narrows. So from there, the story narrows from kind of all of humanity down to this specific group. And it starts with this guy, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God comes to this guy, Abraham, and he says, look, do you remember that guy that I promised from Genesis 3.15? even though Genesis hasn't been written yet. He says, Abraham, do you remember that? And Abraham probably says, sure, yeah. And he says, look, I'm going to um, make sure that that guy comes from your family line. And there's this whole story of Abraham and Sarah, and they have these miracle, this miracle son, Isaac, uh, skipping a lot of details. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a bunch of sons, one of whom is Joseph. And there's that whole story where his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. And the whole family ends up being saved from a famine and moving to Egypt. Um, and that's the, the close of the book of Genesis. Okay, so we're 65 books to go. I hope you don't have lunch plans. That's just the end of Genesis. Um, the next story that we have is uh, it opens up the book of Exodus 400 and, 400 and something years later, um, where the people of God now are numerous, but now they're slaves and uh, to the people of Egypt, and life is hard. And God calls one guy, Moses, to be sort of his spokesperson. And you remember the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, right? You know, the, the uh, let my people go and all that stuff, right? Well, that's exactly how it happened in the Bible, uh, just like that movie. I'm just kidding. It did. There's a lot of differences. Anyway, um, God shows up, though, and one of the things we learn in the, the burning of um, the burning bush story is God gives his name. He calls himself Yahweh, which means I am. I am the eternal one. I have always been and always will be. I exist. And so we learn more about God here. Um, in the book of Exodus, we see a couple of major themes. One of is uh, one of them is that pattern of sacrifice, right? We have the Passover lamb that is killed to save the people from the 10th plague where God destroys um, or, you know, where he uh, takes the life of all the firstborn, but it passes over the house's of uh, the Israelite people. And later on, we'll learn that Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. There's a lot of that stuff in Hebrew, Hebrews. And we also see this pattern of redemption where God consistently saves his rebellious people. And that shows up in the prophets. It shows up in the New Testament all over. So anyway, God takes this people. He frees them from slavery. Uh, they grumble and they're terrible. That's the whole book of Numbers. Um, and in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the last part of Exodus, right? The rest of what we call the Pentateuch there. Um, the law of God is given. So 
God takes his people to Mount Sinai and he, he gives them the law. And that law is broken up into three parts. Now, this is where people usually get tripped up um, in their Bible reading plans and quit. There's a lot of weird stuff in these laws. But one thing I want you to remember is that the law was broken up into these three parts. First, there's the civil law. Here's what you should do and how you should behave as a nation. Then there's the moral law, right? These are laws for people for all time, right? Don't murder. That's a moral law. And then there's ceremonial laws, which is how to do the religious uh, sort of stuff, you know, how to sacrifice. There's so much in like the book of Leviticus and then cut the goat open and pull his entrails out. And you're like, oh man, this is, this is nasty, right? Well, anyway, some of this stuff, as you read, it may bug you as you're reading some of these laws about slavery and women and different stuff. Um, one of the things that I want you to remember is that God worked with his people in stages. So he sort of led them up a staircase and uh, ups higher up the staircase. Looking back, it's really weird for us to say, well, I can't believe that the people of God used to be at the bottom of this staircase. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Um, and so we have to remember that God sort of brought his people along. And so we don't want to just compare our modern morals and ideas with what was happening 5,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or whatever. Um, what we want to do is compare what they were doing with what the other people around them were doing. And they were miles ahead. Like if you take the law of Moses and you compare it to the code of Hammurabi or some of these stuff, right? It's, it's light years ahead. So anyway, God takes these people, brings them into the promised land. Uh, that's the book of Joshua. And there's this big, the conquest over the Canaanites. God uses the people of, of God to judge uh, the wicked Canaanites who were into child sacrifice and all sorts of weird, disgusting things. And God gave the Canaanites a long time to repent and they didn't. And so God uh, uses the Israelites. I know that bugs a lot of people, right? Is God a God of genocide? Is that what we're reading in the book of Joshua? Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about this. There's a book I'll recommend. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? by a guy named Paul Copin. So anyway, um, if you really, if that really does bother you, um, and which I completely understand, um, go check out that book. He kind of goes through a lot of uh, answering those questions. So after the period where the people take over uh, the land of Israel, now they're in the land of Israel, and the book of Judges happens. And in the book of Judges, what we see is um, there's no king in Israel. That, that verse shows up a whole bunch of times in the book of Judges. It says there's no king in Israel, and everybody just does whatever they want. Everybody does what's right in his own eyes. And so the period of Judges is really kind of a low point where God is supposed to be their ruler, and so often the people rebel. And as you read the book of Judges, what you'll see is there's this cycle. Um, the people fall away from God. Um, so God sends an enemy to defeat them, um, and enslave them. Then the people cry out to God. So he raises up a judge. Now don't think of like Judge Judy, right? You're not the boss, the applesauce. Can you believe this guy, Bert? I love Judge Judy. Anyway, um, don't think of Judge Judy. Think of like a military kind of leader who's also a political leader, right? He raises up a judge to rescue the people and uh, they free the people. They worship God. And then after a few years, the cycle starts over. They turn away from God. Um, now, an important theme, too, as you're reading the Old Testament, especially the book of Judges, is to remember that most of these stories are not uh, meant to be emulated. These are not superheroes. Like Samson is not a Christian superhero. We shouldn't be making comic books. I had one of those when I was a kid growing up in church. Um, Samson shows us it's the same thing. There's like the pattern, but Samson's a negative pattern. What Samson does is he shows us what uh, we really need in a leader because of all the stuff that he lacks, right? We really need a savior who will obey Yahweh instead of constantly uh, disobeying. So after the period of judges with these leaders, that goes on for, I think, 400 and something years. Um, after that period, 
Um, the people cry out to God and say, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations. And God says, dude, that is a terrible idea. I'm your king. I'm a great king. And they say, no, we want a king. So there's the period now of the, the united monarchy, which covers three kings. First, there's Saul, who's kind of an idiot with some bright spots. Uh, there's David, who's also kind of an idiot with more bright spots. And then there's Solomon, David's son, uh, who is kind of an idiot with some bright spots, right? This is what we have from these three kings. But there's an important development from this period. So, um, oh, I skipped something too, so I'm going to jump back just a little bit. So the promise from Genesis 3.15 goes to Abraham, and he says, one of your kids is going to be this promised snake crusher. Then Abraham, you know, Isaac, Jacob, all those guys. So there's the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, Joseph and Manasseh and all this stuff. So when uh, uh, Israel is blessing those 12 tribes, he narrows the promise again to Judah, right? And it says the scepter will never depart from Judah. That's at the end of Genesis. Well, now jump forward to King David. And David goes to um, God at one point and he says, hey, it's not really fair that you live in such a nice house or I live in such a nice house and you live in a tent. I'm going to build you a house. And God says, well, thanks, but no thanks, dude. You're a man of war. I don't need you building me a temple. Um, but because your heart is in the right place, I'm going to build you a house. And so there's sort of this play on words where he says now that that promise is narrowed even more to that this one who's going to come and is going to crush the snake is going to be part of the family of David. Right. So I'm going to build you this house. And so now everybody's looking for from the family of David. Is this going to be the guy? So you have Solomon who kind of turns away from God. And I think at the end of his life turns back to God. Solomon's son then is one of the biggest dummies that we have in all of scripture. His name is Rehoboam. And what Rehoboam does is uh, he's one of these trust fund brats who doesn't know anything about the real world. And his horrible leadership ends up with the kingdom splitting in two. So now we have Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And um, the, the book of Kings uh, covers, the book of, uh, I think, Second Kings especially, covers, and a lot of chronicles, the divided monarchy, right? The divided kingdoms. And so Israel in the north pretty much only ever had evil kings, uh, and they even set up their own sort of Safeway brand of the religion because they couldn't, the kings didn't want people traveling to Ju Jerusalem in the south, um, in the southern kingdom. Then we have Judah in the south. It's a mixed bag. There's some good kings. There's a few good ones. There's like... Um, you know, Hezekiah and Josiah and some of these guys. Um, and then there's some really terrible kings. But what ends up happening to both kingdoms is that they are taken over and defeated by enemies. So in the north, in 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel and the city of Samaria is sacked and destroyed by the Assyrians. This big kingdom moves in and destroys everything and basically kills almost everybody and kicks the rest of them out of the country. And the whole kingdom just completely disappears. Um, hundred and some odd years later, in 586 BC, after a couple of different sieges and stuff, the same thing happens in the southern kingdom of Judah, except the kingdom this time is different. It's the kingdom of, um, of Babylon. And he, uh, this guy Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes all of these people of God and he takes them back to Babylon where they end up in exile. Um, and at the end of the book of Kings, there's this really weird story where the guy who's in the line of David... Um, he's dining, it says, after being arrested and all this stuff. Well, they let him out of prison, and then he lived the rest of his life, and it was okay. And it seems like a really weird um, verse until you realize what's going on is that's the line of David. That guy is part of that unbroken chain that's going to lead to the snake crusher. God is fulfilling his promise uh, to Adam and Eve that this snake crusher, the one who will ultimately put things back the way that they're supposed to be, is actually going to show up. 
Now, so uh, the people do eventually come back. Um, that's the book of like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther happens during the exile. Um, and they build a temple and then the Old Testament closes. Now, uh, two other parts of the Old Testament that I want to talk about just real quick is first is we have this huge section of the prophets. You have the major prophets and the minor prophets. The only difference is how long these books are. Um, they're not major as these ones are more important than those ones. Um, and the prophets are just the mouthpieces of God. And so what they're doing is they're speaking judgment. Uh, usually it's judgment. Sometimes they're telling the future. Sometimes they're blessing, whatever it is. But they're just sort of the mouthpieces of God. So we've got like Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, these guys. Um, and then the second, uh, okay, so one real quick tip. As you're reading the prophets, here's what I want you to do. Figure out the historical context. Who is this prophet writing to and why is he writing? What is this about, right? If you read the book of uh, Nahum, let's take a, uh, just a random one, Nahum, you're going to be really confused um, until you realize he's writing a prophecy to comfort God's people by saying, I'm going to destroy the city of Nineveh a couple of years after the Jonah story, right? So figure out the historical context. The second part I'm not going to talk a lot about is the wisdom literature. So you have like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. This Hebrew poetry really is beautiful, and um, it's all inspired by God. Um, and one thing I want you to look out for as you're reading Hebrew poetry, one thing they do a lot is they repeat ideas. So as you're reading this stuff and you're learning about God in the Psalms, the worship book of the Old Testament community, um, look for repeated ideas, right? They'll say something one way, and then they'll kind of say it a little bit different uh, in just a little bit of a, you know, with a little twist on it, okay? So the, the Old Testament closes then. And uh, 400, again, 400 and something years goes by. There's the whole intertestamental period with the Maccabean revolt and all that stuff that's not in our scriptures. Um, and it opens up the New Testament with the Gospel of Matthew. And as you open the Gospel of Matthew, you think, oh, this is the boringest stuff I've ever read in my life. Who are all, it's the list of names and genealogy. But what Matthew is doing is he's tying Jesus, the king, Right, this, this snake crusher is finally here, and he's using this genealogy to connect him to the line of David and to connect him to this whole, this whole Old Testament story and all of this stuff that's already happened. Um, and so there's this hope as we open the New Testament. Finally, after thousands of years of waiting, the one who is going to step on the head of the snake is here. The one who is going to put the world back together and finally defeat death is here. And we read about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, what did his ministry consist of? Well, uh, basically, as you read the, the Gospels, he's giving these glimpses of what the world is supposed to be like. Um, so he's teaching multitudes and about the kingdom of God, um, and he's teaching them the gospel story. And uh, he's giving them glimpses of what it's supposed to be like because we're all a bunch of stupid idiots whose spiritual blindness is a result of the fall, is a result of sin. And so he's giving us a sneak peek behind the curtain. Um, he's teaching his 12 disciples, getting them ready to lead his church. Um, his, he has this huge ministry to outcasts, lepers, tax collectors, zealots. Our broken society and our sin is a result of the fall. And Jesus is bringing these people into the fold. He's casting out demons, right? And the reign of Satan and the reign of the enemy is part of the fall. It's not supposed to be like this. He's healing people to show them that this sickness and this death is not the way that the world is supposed to be. But in all of his ministry, it's all leading up to him taking care of the actual, the biggest problem, um, the, the huge elephant in the room, right? Sin and death. And so how is it then that this one 
this promised king steps on the head of the snake. How does he finally do it? How is this massive victory achieved? How does it happen? With the king nailed to a Roman cross and dying in agony. That's how it happens. All of this leads up to this, this grand victorious moment, right? Where the king dies as a part of the upside down kingdom. This is the moment we've all been looking forward to. And what happens is the king gets up on the cross and he takes the punishment, uh, the wrath of God in our place. So this promise went from Eve to Abraham to Judah to David to Jesus, all leading up to these nails driven through his wrists into the Roman cross. And on the cross, he's separated from the love of the Trinity. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the end, he says, it is finished. A word meaning it, it's paid in full, right? The Passover lamb, the, the, the ultimate Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice, he is the substitute. But that's also not where the story ends, right? On Sunday morning, uh, you, you read in the resurrection accounts, the tomb was empty, right? The sinless Messiah rose from the, uh, rose from the dead to prove that now he has defeated death. He came back in a real resurrected body. He's the first one to receive this resurrection body, which is just a way of saying these ultimate bodies we're all going to get someday to, that are the way that it's supposed to be. And his resurrection body is sort of our down payment. So he hangs out with his disciples for, you know, a couple of weeks, and then he blasts off into the clouds like Superman. And the ascension of Christ back into heaven, where he takes off, has two effects. The first is that now he is ruling uh, and reigning from on high, sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? He is the king, and he has unleashed his kingdom. And then the second thing is that he's unleashed his Holy Spirit upon his people. So by him taking off, he's now sent his Holy Spirit, um, which leads us into the book of Acts, right? Where there's, the book of Acts is the story of this new humanity, this new people of God. And one of the major themes here is that while in the Old Testament, the promise kept narrowing and here's the people of God and here's who's in and out. Now um, it's exploding into it, including everybody. These Gentiles are now being grafted into the people of God. And the book of Acts is the story of Paul and some other guys going around founding a bunch of churches and doing miracles and spreading the gospel. And while they were doing that, they wrote a bunch of letters to some of these churches. And that's most of the New Testament is these most of those books in the New Testament is these epistles. So you have Romans and Ephesians and all these books that are filled with stuff like um, uh, doctrine and uh, greetings. And, you know, just like we get this picture of the early church by reading these books. Um, but ultimately, the major theme in these books is how does the people of God live in a world that's still fallen and sinful and is out to, to oppose God, right? This world that we live in still does not want him to be the Lord. Um, and so how does the people of God navigate that until sort of the end of the books is in Revelation where Jesus comes back? Now, there's a lot of debate about eschatology. I'm not going to get into all of that here in the next couple of minutes. Um, but there's three key points that I think almost everybody agrees on. Um, everybody who can actually read agrees on. First is that Jesus is coming back and he, uh, he will actually return in his physical resurrected body to earth. And it's going to be a it's going to be a big deal when that happens. And so this is what Christian hope is looking forward to is the second coming of Jesus, right? This is kind of how the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus, right? This is the kind of stuff that we're looking forward to, because when he comes, what he's going to do is he's going to judge the world is the first thing, and he's going to finally deal with the uh, ultimately deal with the problem of sin and death and put it away forever. And then he's going to gather his people into the new heavens and the new earth, his new humanity. These 
um, these people who have chosen to put their faith in him um, and uh, who have chosen to let him be their sacrifice. And so when you think of heaven, though, I don't want you to think of um, cream cheese commercials. Right? I remember there was one when I was a kid with the fat baby playing a heart sitting on a fluffy cloud of cream cheese. Right. Um, that's not what I want you to think of. Um, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth is just the world that we live in now, but put back together the way that it's supposed to be. And we're going to have real, actual resurrected bodies that you'll be able to touch. You'll be able to sit down and have coffee with people. And sure, maybe grandma will be there, right? I know a lot of people, oh, I can't wait to see grandma again or whatever. But here's the big selling point for the new heavens and the new earth is ultimately now we are going to be rid of the sin that is wrecking our lives and we are gonna be reunited with the king. We're gonna be living in perfect harmony with him for how long? For eternity. That's a really long time. I want you to think about that. And I, I may have said this to you guys before, but um, in, a, in a million years, your small group is gonna to get together and have dinner in the new heavens and new earth. And you're gonna celebrate that you guys have been a small group now for a million years. Then you'll do it again in a billion years and a trillion years, right? This this world is going to be put back together and we're going to live with our father and with his people for all of uh, eternity. So we go from a garden at the beginning of the story to the new Jerusalem, uh, to a garden to the city, right, is the story of scripture with a few road, you know, a few, um, what are those called, speed bumps in between. Okay, so hopefully in that really quick um, me talking really fast and trying to race through the scriptures, you can get a, a view before you do your reading plan that there's this, this thread that goes all the way through the story of the scriptures. There's this gospel story. And these are 66 different books. Well, I think it's actually 63 books because some of them we've kind of combined or separated. Um, but anyway, this 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 collection of books, it's the story of our king. And I understand that as you decide you want to do a reading plan, it can be daunting. Right, as you open it up, let's see, how many pages is this Bible? I don't know. Let's see here. 1253. That's a lot of pages to just to just kind of jump in and go through. I understand that it can be daunting. So what I want to do is give you four resources. Can you see my four? There you go. Um, that I think can be super helpful to you um, as you do a reading plan. Okay. So the first resource is there's this thing online. It's on YouTube. Uh called the Bible Project. I'm sure Toby showed those. I don't know if you guys have used those at Christ Church before, but um, they do these little videos and they have two kinds of videos I think that can be super helpful. The first is they have a whole set of videos that you can watch this week before you start your reading plan on January 1st called How to Read the Bible. And they just have a whole bunch. They cover how to read narrative, how to read poetry, uh, how to read, you know, all these different stuff, how to read the prophets, I think. Um, go watch those videos before you start. Then as you're reading, they have done these videos um, where they outline books of the Bible, right? And, uh, you know, they kind of draw on the little chalkboard or whatever it is. And these videos are fantastic where he just says, before you read the book of Genesis, here's an outline of the whole book of Genesis. And they're usually five. Some, some books have two videos. Um, so, you know, five to 10 minutes, I think. Um, so anyway, watch one of those before you start reading a book. And Tim Mackey's going to fill in a lot of the details and he is, really masterful at telling you, look, let me tell you how the book of Amos fits into the whole gospel story, fits into that thread that runs through the whole Bible. Okay, the second thing that I would recommend is to use um, an audio book if you want. There's a really phenomenal app. It's called Dwell, and it is a small subscription. Um, 
I think it's like 50 bucks if your whole church gets it and you guys can all split one. I don't know. Somebody call Toby, text Toby, tell him to do it. I don't know how that works. Um, but this Dwell app is fantastic, has a bunch of different versions, but they hired real voice actors to read the scriptures. Um, it's not some sort of a computer robot voice. And there's a little thing where you can play some music and go and you can ch change the speed. And um, I really love the Dwell app. I was, uh, um, you know, I backed them on Kickstarter or something and, uh, when it first came out. And I, I'm really more of one of those people who, uh, if I listen to an audio book versus if I read the book, I'll understand the audio book. I'll remember more of it from hearing it than from reading it. And so I, when I do a Bible reading plan, I throw in an AirPod and I put on the Dwell app and I read along and it's really fantastic. Um, it helps me focus. Um, the third thing I'll tell you about is, um, it's called the, what is it called? The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. Now, this is not my favorite translation in the world, although it's fine, you know. I, there's a couple other translation I use, translations that I use instead. But anyway, in the back of this book, um, in the back of this study Bible, there is a um, section of, I should have bookmarked this. I don't know how many that is. I don't even know. You guys can't even see that. Who cares? Anyway, there's a section where um, these different Bible scholars wrote really short articles about all these various themes that you see in the Bible. So there's creation, sin, covenant, law, temple, right? And so basically, a lot of those patterns that I told you to look out for, there's probably 20 or 30 of them. These guys wrote an article about each pattern. And so if you want to check this out and go read through some of these articles, they're really short. They're like a page each. Um, you'll get a really good picture of what... Um, some of these themes are and how they're flushed out through the entire scripture. And so here's the last thing I want to recommend. Now you're going to say, wait, are you some kind of an idiot or something? Yes, I am. Which is why I, <laughs> you know, this is not an academic resource. This is the, uh, there's the light there, the Jesus storybook Bible. Can you guys see that? Uh, anyway. Okay. So those theme books are great. This is even better, right? This is, um, a Bible for kids, and I would love it if you would read this with your kids, but I think every adult should read this as well. There are very few books that tell the entire story of Scripture as beautifully, as succinctly, and as clear as the Jesus Storybook Bible. So this is a, a little bit of a longer version of that story that I just told. I want to read to you just from a little bit of the beginning of the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if I've done this with your church. I've done this at a few different churches, but um, this is how I want to close the sermon today. I'm a little bit over my time, but I just want to read this this part from the first uh, from the first section, the opening chapter here of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, um, "This is towards the end of the first chapter." There's a lot of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story: the story of how God loves His children and He comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And in the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece of a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And then suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom uh, would every, wait, upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, well, but wait, our story must start where all good stories start, right at the beginning, and then it jumps into the Genesis story, right? That's that's what I wanted you to see today, that there's 
there's a lot of stories in the Bible, but every one of those stories whispers the name of Jesus. And so I really would encourage you to do a reading plan if you're not doing one next year, or, you know, even if it's faster or slow, whatever. Spend some time in scripture. But as you do, I want you to look at how does this text point me to King Jesus? Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I, I thank you that you have inspired these scriptures, that they have been preserved for literally thousands of years so that we could come together and, and read them and talk about them so that we could hear uh, you speak to us, your people. We thank you that you have um, you've created this universe, you, you've given us this world, and that when we broke it, you didn't just leave us to our own, but you stepped into the story and you're active and that you have guided all of history uh, to lead uh, to redemption and restoration. And Lord, now we live in a time where, um, where the world system of Babylon is all around us. And there's so much that is opposed to you. And it, it's hard, Lord, to be your people. But we just pray that you would use your scriptures as we read them next year and just all the time, you know, that you would use them to guide us how to be the people of God, how to love uh, when others hate, right? How to do justice when others do injustice, um, how to serve when others want to be served, right? How to be a light in the darkness. Lord, this stuff is not in, inside of us without you. And so we just pray that you would send your spirit to, to use this book um, to, to bring light into our hearts and to our churches um, so that we can be a light here in San Francisco and to this city that we love so much. And so, um, I just pray you would bless Christ Church and the porch and just all these churches here in the city, and that you would you would blanket us with uh, the love of your Holy Spirit. We love you so much. We don't deserve anything that you've given us. And we just pray all this in the name of your Son, our King, um, Jesus Christ. Amen.